Book Review. 1948 by Benny Morris. By Yoya Halberstadt. T. Content Warning. War, Israel-Palestine Conflict. Potential Bias Warning. I am a Jewish Israeli. My copy of 1948 arrived in late September, but I was in the middle of another book. Then October the 7th happened, and with the horrors of that day fresh in my mind, and my country in a brutal war, I wasn't in a mental state where I could read about all the cruelties of another war between Israelis and Palestinians. But ultimately I couldn't abandon it. If Hamas was willing to justify genocide of Israelis based on the 1948 Palestine War and its aftermath, and Israel the permanent occupation of the Palestinians, and I was willing to pay taxes to and thus implicitly support Israel in that conflict, I felt like I had a duty to at the very least get my facts straight about what happened. So here is a review of that book, and some of my concluding thoughts at the end. There's an image here, described as Cover of 1948, The First Arab-Israeli War by Benny Morris Heading Bias No book about the Israel-Palestinian conflict can be completely free of bias. You always have to pick which events to highlight, which sources to trust. But with that caveat, 1948 is a pretty good pick. Benny Morris is a liberal Israeli Zionist, albeit one with ever-changing, and often maverick, views. However he is not interested in telling a narrative. His aim is to get the facts straight about what happened, and damn the political consequences. Critics of his book rarely claim his lying or deliberately manipulating the reader. Instead they focus on his inability to read Arabic, and his preference for official documents over interviews with participants. Since Israeli, American, and British documents from the period are generally declassified, but Arab ones are not, and the Israelis were far more literate than the Palestinians, this creates a natural blind spot around the Arab-Palestinian narrative. With that in mind, we can be sure that when Benny Morris says something happened it almost certainly did, but there may be events, perspectives and details he's simply not privy to. Given the brevity of the book, I don't think that makes too much difference, see below. Heading Brevity. I've previously read Martin Gilbert's History of Israel, which dedicates a fair few chapters to the 1948 war. In it he paints a richly detailed picture of the war, and you come out feeling like you've got a pretty good understanding of the various different battles and events. 1948 is the opposite. Although spending its 400-plus pages entirely focused on this war, it discusses everything very briefly, with a sparsity of detail. Most individual battles get a clause or a sentence, some get a paragraph, and only very occasionally do we get an account from an individual soldier. Massacres and expulsions are similarly given a sentence or two at most, this happened. Here are some various different casualty estimates, moving on. What does get a bit more detail and texture is the politics, the mindset of the various decision makers, and how that influenced the progression of the war. This highlights how Morris is not trying to tell a narrative. He's not trying to get you to understand what it would feel like to be involved in that war. He's trying to give you a survey of almost all battles and events in that war, and if he spends two pages giving accounts of the Battle of Nirim, he won't be able to tell you anything about the Battle of Beit Hanaun. What he does focus on though, is the decision-making and background for the events that occurred, since that is critical for putting the war in perspective. Nonetheless the book is fairly readable, and the brevity mitigates most of our worries about bias. We know we're discussing pretty much every major event, at least briefly, and since nothing is strongly highlighted, we know that's not adversely selected for either. Heading. Synopsis. Subheading. 
Background In the 19th century Israel was part of the Ottoman Empire. It was sparsely populated, and inhabited by locals not much different from the rest of the Levant. Nationalism wasn't a thing in those parts, and they viewed themselves as part of a family or a village, not as part of a state. Towards the end of the 19th century Zionist Jews started immigrating to Israel. They bought land and farmed it, with a dream of eventually creating a Jewish state in the land of their forefathers. Whilst peaceful, that was partly out of a realization that war would be counterproductive, there definitely were some that knew they would eventually have to take up arms if they wanted to achieve their goal. But they were thinking of war against the Ottomans, and later the British, at this stage, like most European colonizers, they didn't think too much about the locals at all. Over time bad feelings between the locals and the Jews started to brew. Their cultures were very different, and whilst the Jews, usually, bought their land fair and square, the owners of the land were very rarely the ones who lived and worked on it. So those who had worked the land for years were evicted and the Jews took over, inevitably leading to bad blood. At the same time Arab and Palestinian nationalism started to grow, at least in urban areas, although this didn't have too much impact till at least the 1930s. In the First World War the British and French took over the Ottoman Middle East, and carved it up into a number of protectorates, which over time became independent states, Jordan, Syria, Egypt, Iraq, etc. They didn't know what to do with Palestine so they ruled it under the British mandate for Palestine. Over the next 30 years there was lots of nationalist fighting and general nastiness between the Jews and the British, the Palestinian Arabs and the British, and the Jews and the Arabs. This included plain outright terrorism from all sides and generally made the bad blood a lot worse. By 1947 the British had had enough and dumped the hot potato onto the UN. The Arabs declared the entire process as an illegitimate attempt to colonize Arab land, and basically refused to have anything to do with it. The Zionists put incredible resources into persuading the Special Committee on Palestine, and the member nations that a partition of Palestine was the fairest outcome and successfully won a two-thirds majority in favor of partition on 29 November, 1947. Unsurprisingly given the Arab lack of participation, the partition was much more generous to the Jews than it was to the Palestinians. There's an image here, described as undefined. Subheading. The Civil War. The Arabs were incensed at this, from their perspective some immigrants had come to their land, and then suddenly taken half the country for their own state. The neighboring Arab states declared that if this ever happened they would destroy Israel. The local Arabs organized in loose militias, and started attacking Jewish targets. At this stage the British had over a hundred thousand troops in the country, but they steadily pulled them out in preparation for the termination of the mandate on 14 May, 1948. Whilst they quashed any larger battles, and acted as occasional peacemakers, overall they didn't interfere too much with the civil war. Whilst the Palestinians were poorly organized, the Yishuv, as the Jewish settlements were known, was effectively a protostate, which raised taxes, had an army, the Haganah, which grew into the IDF, and efficiently governed itself. Their biggest challenges at this stage were a complete lack of heavy weapons, strict Jewish immigration restrictions, and the need not to provoke the British. The early part of the civil war involved Palestinian militias attacking Jewish settlements and convoys. Whilst the well-organized Haganah easily drove off the ragtag attacks on the settlements, the convoys were much harder to protect, which almost led to the collapse of parts of the Yishuv. The Haganah often carried out reprisal attacks on neighboring villages which were suspected of being the source or harboring these militias, 
but these were little more than raids, rather than attacks aimed at gaining territory. There was also plenty of terrorism by both sides. The presence of the British made it impossible for the Arab states to invade, or for the Haganah to take over new territory. By April though it was clear that if the Yishuv wasn't to starve, they would have to ensure contiguous control over all the areas that contained Jewish settlements. They also needed to ensure defensible borders in preparation for an invasion by the neighboring Arab states. By then most of the British troops had left the country, and so the Haganah kicked off a campaign to conquer villages in or near Jewish areas and along supply routes, and to expel the villagers. It was during this campaign that the Ergun Alihi carried out the Dei Yassin massacre. This was exaggerated in the Palestinian press, which backfired and caused large numbers of Palestinians to flee areas adjacent to the Yishuv. By the time the last British troops left Palestine, the Yishuv controlled a contiguous strip of land that encompassed the vast majority of their settlements. Local Palestinian resistance was crushed, and many had fled en masse. Subheading. Invasion. On 15 May the State of Israel declared independence. Simultaneously the neighboring Arab states, all of which had been waiting for the mandate to be over, invaded. On paper the invading armies were far stronger than the Haganah, which had only light arms. They had tanks, heavy guns, air forces, and were much larger. However they were poorly organized and trained, far from their supply lines, using badly maintained equipment, and were low on ammunition. They also all had their own agendas. The Jordanians had secretly negotiated with the Yishuv for peace, hoping to take the West Bank for themselves, and leave the rest for Israel. The Egyptians also wanted a slice of Palestine for themselves and wanted to counter Jordanian ambitions. The Iraqis might have been aiming to control the Haifa oil refinery. The Lebanese failed to attack at all, knowing they were too weak to risk a war. The Syrians were also weak, and were never too serious a threat. They quickly overran Palestinian areas and made some small advances into Israeli-controlled territory, but were quickly stopped with heavy losses. From then on they were on the defensive, never making any serious offensives. The Jordanians did however threaten the road to Jerusalem, risking starvation for the 100,000-odd Jewish inhabitants, and the Egyptians cut off a huge area of Jewish settlement in the northern Negev desert. The IDF tried desperately to reverse these losses, but apart from minor gains this was mostly unsuccessful. A UN-imposed, one-month-long truce kicked in on the 11th of June. An arms embargo had been imposed on all sides by the UN, but whilst the Arab army were dependent on the British for resupply, the Yishuv had extensive experience smuggling arms into the country. Boosted by an influx of both Jewish immigrants and weapons, over the course of the truce, and the rest of the war, the IDF grew steadily stronger whilst the Arab armies failed to make use of the break. There's an image here, described as undefined. Subheading. The 10 days. After the truce was up the IDF immediately went on the offensive on all fronts, taking large swathes of the western Galilee, biting into the small Syrian advance north of the Sea of Galilee, and pushing back the Jordanians near Lod and Ramel. Whenever the IDF conquered an Arab village they expelled all inhabitants and burned down the houses so the locals couldn't return. This was driven partly by military necessity, they didn't have the manpower to guard against attacks from within, but also partly from vengeance and a desire to achieve a mostly Jewish state. Despite making significant advances, they failed to achieve their main military aims, securing the road to Jerusalem, and linking up with the besieged northern Negev enclave. By the end of the ten days the Union imposed another truce, this time of indefinite length. 
During this truce the UN considered what to do with Palestine. The original partition was clearly dead with the Egyptians occupying most of the Negev and Israel much of the Galilee, and there were talks of giving the entire Negev to Egypt to Jordan, and the entire Galilee to Israel. Whilst the truce enabled Israel to rearm and train more troops, it also took a heavy toll. It was forced to maintain a complete war footing and total mobilization in a small poor country, that desperately needed to start developing its economy. Both the Egyptians and Jordanians were just a few KMS from Tel Aviv, and so the IDF had to be constantly on the alert for any potential attack. The Arab states, fielding small professional armies far from home, had no such issues, and could maintain this situation indefinitely. Also the Egyptians prevented convoys from entering the Negev pocket, against the terms of the truce, forcing Israel to keep it supplied through its minuscule air force. Subheading. The final phase. Israel prepared for an operation in the Negev, then pushed a convoy into the pocket. When the Egyptians inevitably attacked, they had their cases belly and attacked. By the time a truce was eventually forced on them by the UN they had linked up with the pocket encircled 4,000 Egyptians in the Fallujah pocket, pushed the Egyptians back all the way to Gaza, and taken Beersheba. A similar operation was planned in the Galilee. When the ALA occupied an Israeli position and sniped from it at Israeli targets, it began, and succeeded in completely occupying the Galilee and even parts of southern Lebanon. However once again a truce was imposed, and once again Israel was forced to maintain an unsustainable complete mobilization. Ultimately Ben Gurion decided that the only way to force an armistice was to completely defeat the Egyptians. This time, without waiting for any contraventions of the truce, the IDF attacked into the Sinai, routing the Egyptians and almost encircling Gaza, before the IDF pulled back to the border of mandatory Palestine under British pressure. They then aimed for a smaller encirclement of Gaza at Rafah, until the Egyptians agreed to enter into armistice negotiations. Subheading. Armistice. The Egyptians were now keenly aware that they were sorely outmatched by Israel. They eventually agreed to an armistice whereby they pulled back to the Sinai, except for Gaza, which they controlled till 1967, and large parts of the Egyptian, mandatory Palestine border were declared demilitarized zones. This gave the other Arab countries an excuse to pursue their own peace. The Lebanese quickly agreed in return for an Israeli withdrawal back to the border. The Jordanians originally haggled for all or part of the Negev, but the IDF, peacefully, occupied the entirety of the Negev up to Eilat in March, presenting the Jordanians with a fait accompli. Ultimately the Jordanians kept the West Bank, which they controlled till 1967, and the Israelis everything else. The Syrians pulled out of the small parts of Palestine they had conquered, which were declared demilitarized zones. Subheading. Conclusion. In his final chapter Morris finally loses the persona of the dispassionate historian, and starts giving his own opinions and interpretations of the war. I think this chapter definitely does reflect his bias, so I'm not going to go over it here, but it will inform some of the opinions I give in the next few chapters. Heading. War Crimes. Subheading. Expulsion. Most Palestinians and Arab leaders had an explicit agenda to expel all Jews from Israel whilst others were prepared to potentially grant the Jews a small semi-autonomous zone and severely curtail immigration. However they were never very successful in the war, conquering only a handful of Jewish villages. The IDF pretty consistently expelled all Arabs from villages they conquered, although there are a fair number of exceptions. Whilst never publicly announced, and never spelled out as such in official policy at the highest levels, 
it's clear that this was more or less desired by the top brass. At first this was driven by military necessity, during the civil war the villages were used as bases by irregulars to attack Jewish convoys, and it didn't have the manpower to police these villages. This remained more or less necessary for the rest of the war, but by the end of the war it's clear the IDF was also aiming to achieve a favorable Jewish-Arab ratio in the new state, and prevent any future fifth column. Some 400 Arab villages were evacuated and 700,000 to 900,000 Palestinians fled, or were expelled from Israel over the course of the war. Despite numerous UN resolutions to the contrary they have never been allowed to return. Subheading. Massacres. Differentiating between collateral damage and deliberate targeting of civilians is always hard in urban fighting, and is always a point of contention, and often a question of definition. The Palestinian militias and the Lehi Ergen both happily targeted civilians in the civil war, whilst the Haganah was somewhat more restrained, as were the Arab armies. In the few cases where Arab armies conquered Jewish villages, they usually prevented Palestinian irregulars from executing the POWs. Palestinians probably massacred some 200 Jewish civilians POWs in cold blood, and Morris estimated that Jewish forces massacred some 800 or so. Again this difference is largely due to Israel being more successful in the war. There were also a handful of reported cases of rape, but we expect there are far more we don't know about. Morris argues that this is roughly in line with what happens in almost all wars involving urban areas, and even that the number is on the lower end of what we would expect. Based on my knowledge of military history this seems roughly correct. Neither side took prisoners in the civil war, but Morris considers that legitimate, the British wouldn't have allowed them to create prison camps so they had little choice. Post-mandate both sides took prisoners and generally treated them well minus a handful of cases on both sides of both torture, mutilation and execution. Subheading. Conquest. It was the explicit aim of the Palestinians and Arab armies to conquer the entirety of mandatory Palestine, albeit one they were unsuccessful in. Unofficially Jordan was hoping to occupy the West Bank and Egypt to occupy Gaza, the Negev Desert, and the Southern West Bank. Jordan and Egypt occupied the West Bank of Gaza respectively until 1967. Israel's initial aims in the civil war were to conquer contiguous areas of territory needed to link up Jewish settlements, and allow convoys to flow. That later morphed into conquering all areas assigned to them under the partition plan, and eventually into conquering as much of mandatory Palestine as they could get their hands on. Heading. Scattered thoughts. If all you wanted was a historical account of what occurred, and a discussion of the book, you can stop here. Now I'm going to very briefly list some of the conclusions I drew reading the book. 1. Both the Israeli and Palestinian narratives of the 1948 war have some merit, but are also often incorrect. I think however that discussing them in this forum wouldn't be helpful, and would lead to accusations that I'm misrepresenting their narrative. 2. Even ignoring everything that happened afterwards, it's understandable why Palestinians would hate Israelis. They were expelled from their land by foreigners, and many were killed. 3. Even ignoring everything that happened afterwards, it's understandable why Israelis would hate Palestinians. There were many anti-Jewish riots pre-1947, Israel was prepared to accept a peaceful partition of the land, and instead were forced into a war for their survival in which many of them were killed. 4. I think the party who really doesn't get sufficiently blamed here is the British. They threw their burden onto the UN, but were unprepared to actually carry out the partition plan the UN decided on. 
this was despite having over 100,000 troops in the country, and being the arms supplier for the Arab countries. If they decided to enforce partition it would have been a fait accompli. Instead, once they decided to abandon Palestine the partition plan was doomed. British officers even commanded the Jordanian Arab Legion in the war. 5. This is still nowhere near sufficient to understand the current state of the Israel-Palestine conflict. If I were to guess what the present would look like based only on events up to 1949. I would assume Palestinian refugees either returned to Israel or the West Bank, or eventually settled where they fled. Jordan and Egypt either annexed the West Bank of Gaza, or established an independent state s there. In order to really understand why things look like they do, we need to understand the 1967 war and its causes, hopefully my next project. This article was narrated by Type 3 Audio for Less Wrong. It was first published on December 3, 2023. The original text contained eight footnotes which were omitted from the narration. To report an issue or give feedback on this narration, go to t3a.is.